Part three of the Olivet Discourse, subtitled False Christ. False Christ. It is Tuesday, not only here today, but in the Life of Christ study. Tuesday of the Passion Week. It's late afternoon, and the Lord and his men have stopped for a rest on what mountaintop? Mount of Olives, which really is more like a hill. He's on his way, is journeying from Jerusalem back to Bethany, where he'll spend the night with his beloved friends, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Now, the Mount of Olives, if you've ever been there, you know that it overlooks the city of Jerusalem on the east. And the Lord had just recently shocked and perplexed his disciples by not only predicting the destruction of Jerusalem but also and the temple, but... Um, of Jerusalem and the temple and the desolation of the temple, of course, which he had just done when he left it, he desolate, it was left desolate. And they were so shocked by these statements, uh, especially when he said that with the temple, that magnificent colossal temple, that not one stone would be left upon another. That was in Matthew 24 too. You can look at it if you're opened up to Matthew 24, that the men uh, remained silent all the way from Jerusalem to the top of the mountain, the Mount of Olives. They had been contemplating, obviously, those predictions. And they saw their opportunity to approach him with their two very pressing questions when they saw him sit down to take a rest. And these questions, these two questions that they asked in verse 3, brought forth from the lips of the greatest prophet who has ever lived, the greatest prophetic sermon in all the scripture. And what is it called? The Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. Well, the first question, which the spokesman disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, we know that from over in Matthew 13, that it was those four guys who asked the questions. The first question that they asked the Lord was with regard to when these things would occur. That's in Matthew 24, 3. When are these things, when is the destruction and the desolation of the temple and Jerusalem going to happen? And we found out in our study last time that Luke was the only one of the three synoptic writers who gave us the Lord's answer to that first question. And we found that in Luke 21, verses 20 to 24. You've just been discussing it in your homework groups, right? In your, in your discussion groups. And even though they didn't ask for a sign in that first question, they asked him for a sign in their second question, but yet he gave them a sign in answering their first question, when would these things be? And he told them that the sign would be when she, Jerusalem, Israel, would see the city encompassed about by an enemy army. And then she would know that her desolation was near. Of course, we know, as we looked at last week, great history lesson, wasn't it? That the, uh, the Lord was predicting the events of the Jewish war that would take place some 37 years after his death and resurrection. The Jews rebelled against, not a very wise move, was it? But they rebelled against the mighty Roman Empire, beginning in 66 AD, and the final outcome of that not very smart move was the loss of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives, the scattering of the Jewish people into all the world, the leveling of Jerusalem. All that was left of the city was three towers and a part of the Western Wall which still stands to this day, and the Jews go to it, and what do they do? They wail, and they put little prayer requests, little white 
pieces of paper. Prayer, the whole wall is loaded with prayer requests. And it's known famously as the Wailing Wall. That's all that was left of the city. But just like Jesus had predicted about the temple, what happened to the temple? Not one stone was left upon another. Literally fulfilled, just like he said. Well, in discussing not only that passage in Luke 21, but also remember the words that the Lord had spoken on Palm Sunday as he again was on the Mount of Olives and looked over the city as he was coming in to the city, Palm Sunday, and he said, you know, if you'd only known this the day of your visitation, and he wept over the city. Um, we, when we discussed those two passages, and that was over in Luke 19, we learned that every single jot and tittle of his predictions came to pass. How? Literally. Right down to the most minute details, even about, you know, um, that wall of dirt that the Romans built around the city of Jerusalem. Everything came to pass literally. When he gave his men the answer to their first question, when will these things be? History itself, not me, history tells us that he was not speaking figuratively. He wasn't speaking allegorically or metaphorically or symbolically as he describes the, described the events, predicted the events that would transpire in 70 A.D., not only to Jerusalem, but to the temple. So then why, I ask, why would anyone think that his answer to his disciples' second question will come to pass any other way but literally and specifically? I don't get it. I don't get why some people say, well, we know the first question was answered literally. History tells us that. But the answer to the second question, which is all about the tribulation period and the end times, well, that's not really going to come to pass, you know, like he said. We can't take that literally. We can't take the book of Revelation. Why do people know, I mean, they know that all the messianic predictions about the Lord's first coming came to pass literally? Didn't it say he'd be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata? of the tribe of Judah, that uh, he would be born of a virgin, that he would have a specific lineage that came through Abraham and King David, etc., etc. All those predictions came to pass literally, literally, not symbolically. Not So then why do the same people then say that all the messianic predictions about his second coming, oh, no, you can't take those literally. He's not really going to come, as he said, you know, from the heavens and put his feet down on the Mount of Olives and all those trumpet and seal and bowl judgments, you can't take those literally. Even though, you know, when there is symbolic language, we understand that, but the Bible interprets the symbolism. But why, and you know what that's called when you people do that? And there are many, many, many people that do that, many churches that teach that. Yes, first coming was literal, second coming won't be. That's called inconsistent biblical interpretation. And God is not inconsistent. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it doesn't make sense, does it? So we're not going to do that in this study. As we study the Mount of Ol- I mean the uh, Olivet Discourse, we're going to be taking it literally. Well, anyway, in, in his answer to the second important question, <clears throat> which was, what shall be the sign? Now, here's where they did ask for a sign. What shall be the sign of thy coming? And the end of of the world, which really isn't the world, it's the end of the age, he gave a panoramic, literal view of the yet future, unique 
period of seven years on earth known by many names in the scripture. It is known as the time of indignation. It's known as the time of Jacob's trouble. And who is Jacob? Jacob's name, remember, was changed to Israel. Time of Israel's trouble, we could say. It's also called the distress of nations. It's called the day of darkness, the day of God's wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. Remember when we, we listened to his answer to their first question, and it was all about the 70 A.D. destruction by Rome of Jerusalem? And he said it would be the days of vengeance. Whose vengeance was it? God's vengeance on that generation that crucified his son. The tribulation is all going to be about God's wrath, God's vengeance on the world, on the whole world. So it's known as the day of God's wrath, the great day of God's wrath. It's also called Daniel's 70th week. But most commonly, the seven years of what? Tribulation are known as the tribulation because of the fact that it will be primarily characterized by unprecedented tribulation, worldwide tribulation. Well, because the remainder of the Olivet Discourse from here on in, as we discuss the Olivet Discourse, it's going to be about the tribulation period. Of course, and then we'll get to the end when the Lord does return. But um, we're going to be talking a lot about the tribulation. So I want to spend a few minutes of our time on this subject. And there's no better way to, to understand the tribulation period than to allow Scripture to speak for itself. Now, there are hundreds of passages in the Scripture, believe it or not, all the way from the, the writings of Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, to, you know, through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, all the way to the last book of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation, which is loaded with tribulation scriptures. Um, but the, the Bible is literally full of, of passages that tell us about this coming unprecedented time of horrific tribulation and persecution and, you know, the Antichrist reigning, etc., etc. So I'm just going to read you a few passages, a, a few little select passages. And so just listen. Don't try to even look them up. They're all in your notes, so just, just listen to me read them. The first one I'm going to read from is a writing of Moses, Deuteronomy 4, verses 30 and 31. It says, When thou, and he's speaking to Israel, when thou, Israel, art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days. Speaking of the latter days, when Israel's in tribulation. If thou turn to the Lord thy God and shall be obedient unto his voice, he will not forsake thee. Neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he swear unto them. All the way from the writings of Moses, God was telling Israel, you know, Israel, when you're going through that terrible tribulation that you have no idea about yet, but when you're in it in the latter days, if you will even then turn to me, I won't forsake you. I'll be there for you. And I'll remember the promises, the covenant promises I made to your father. All right, there's another one in Isaiah 26, 20 and 21, which says, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself as it were for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. You know what he's saying there? Any of you that listen to me, just like he told those who would have ears to hear about the sign, you know, when you see Jerusalem compassed about by an enemy army, if you'll just flee out of there, 
you can be preserved. He's saying the same thing here in Isaiah. He says, you know, uh, if you'll hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. Indignation is another term for the tribulation. You'll be okay. And now there are going to be people who will hear the Lord's words here in the Olivet Discourse when he says, you know, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, when you see the Antichrist, um, set up an image of himself in the temple, get out of there. There are going to people, be people, Jewish people, who will flee, and they say they think they'll probably go to um, Jordan and into the city of Petra. And if they do that, they'll be preserved, just like he promises here. They'll be saved from the time of the tribulation. It says, For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. There will be so many slain that there won't even be enough people to bury them. Jeremiah 30 verse 7 says, Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. But he, speaking of Jacob or Israel, shall be saved out of it. Israel will be saved out of the tribulation. You know, when the Lord returns and saves her. So, that's good news. Daniel 9.27, and speaking of the Antichrist, it says, And he, the Antichrist, shall come and confirm the covenant with many for one week. And the Hebrew word there for week, I think it's the word Shiva, it speaks of a week of seven years. So that's, you know, we know that it's going to be a seven-year period. He says, uh, Daniel says, And in the midst of the week, what would that be? At the three-and-a-half-year mark... The Antichrist is going to cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. That's one of the passages that tell us we know there's going to be a temple, a Jewish temple again in Jerusalem during the tribulation. Because the Antichrist is going to make all the sacrifices stop. And that's when he's going to abominate by setting up his own image in there, in the Holy of Holies. Daniel 12.1 says, and at that time shall Michael stand up. Who's Michael? He's the archangel over the... Um, protects Israel, the Jewish people. He says, The great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, the Jews, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. Joel 2 says, The day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand, a day of darkness and a day of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. There hath not ever been the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. Zephaniah 1.18, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. Whose wrath? The Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. Matthew 24, verses 21-22, that's exactly where we are, you know, in the Olivet Discourse. Well, not exactly where we are, but it's in the Olivet Discourse. It says, for then shall be great tribulation. Such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. That's a little mysterious, isn't it? We'll talk about that when we get to verses 21 and 22. Luke 21, 25 and 26 says, And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations. That's another title for the tribulation, distress of nations. Not only is it going to be a time of Jacob's trouble, but all the nations are going to be distressed. 
He says, uh, with perplexity, the sea and the waves growing, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. I wouldn't want to be living in that time. I mean, it's a fearful thing to live in the world as it is today, not knowing when, you know, Iran or, or Osama might try to do something which they're saying could be within the next six months. But to live during the tribulation when every day there's something happening, no wonder men's hearts will, you know, fail them for fear. First Thessalonians 5, 3, For when they shall say peace and safety, then what? Sudden destruction shall come upon them as travail, labor, labor pains, upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. And then there's Revelation. These are just a few of many passages I could give you. But in Revelation 6, verses 15 to 17, it says, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bond man, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? That verse just always amazes me. That even though these people in those days will know where the wrath is coming from, they'll admit it's coming from God himself and from the Lamb, yet they hide themselves, just like Adam did in his sin. They hide, instead of coming out and saying, please be merciful to me, they hide themselves and they still shake their fist in his face even though they know who's sending it. Isn't that incredible? How willful unbelief can be. Well, from these passages, just a few of the Holy Scriptures, we see that the tribulation period is to be a period of wrath, judgment, trial, trouble, darkness, desolation, indignation, overturning, and punishment, and we could go on and on. The Bible abounds with passages, not only a few that I read to you, but abounds with other passages that tell us this is definitely a time of God's wrath. After all, if you read the book of Revelation in chapter 5, who is it? that receives the title deed to this earth called a scroll and loosens the seals on that scroll. Jesus Christ. He, it's a time of his wrath. He loosens the seals, and out of the seal judgments come the trumpet judgments, and out of the last trumpet judgment come all the vile or bold judgments. It's a time of God's wrath. But um, although this is a time of God's wrath, the world will also witness the horrific satanic persecution of tribulation saints, those who come to know Christ during the tribulation. After the church is removed, many people will be saved. Um, and this is also going to be a time of horrific satanic persecution, of course, of Israel God, and God's people, the Jews. Yet, the wrath of Satan is only possible by permission of sovereign God. You see, just as sovereign God used Titus Vespasian in the day of his vengeance on Jerusalem and Israel for rejecting his son, God is going to use the unholy trinity, which will consist, you know, everything Satan does counterfeits God. So he's going to have his unholy trinity, which will consist of Satan in the place of God, the Antichrist in the place of Christ, and the false prophet in the place of the Holy Spirit. But it will only be by way of God's permission that this unholy trinity will um, be able to wreak 
havoc on Israel and the world and the saints. So God will be using them as his channels to execute his will and his purposes. So everything is by way of his permission, isn't it? He's sovereign. And now, because some of you might wonder, well, why in the world would God send and permit such dreadful tribulation and persecution of his people? Um, Why would he allow that to happen? Why would he allow Satan to do this? And why would he himself be sending all of these judgments? So I want to take a few minutes now to give you four primary reasons. These, again, are in your notes, so you don't have to worry about trying to write them down. Four primary reasons for the tribulation period. Number one, and always remember this. So many people point to God and say, he's so cruel and mean, and how could he do this? Always behind everything, his purpose is to save people. During the tribulation, more people will be saved than we've ever seen in one generation on earth, much less seven years. There will be a multitude of people saved. During the early tribulation, God is going to save 144,000 Jewish men, and he's going to put a special seal upon them. He's going to protect them from harm. And he's going to send these 144,000, I always think of 144,000 Apostle Pauls. (laughs) He's going to send them throughout the nations, the Gentile nations. They're going to do what Israel should have done all along. They're going to be witnesses to the whole rest of the world. And they're going to preach the gospel until Christ returns. As a result of their mightily empowered evangelistic preaching, a great multitude of Gentiles will be saved out of every tongue, every language, even dialects, every tribe, and every nation. A great multitude. Now, many of them will die as martyrs, but in the long run, isn't it better to be saved and die because you spend eternity in heaven? Much, much better. So, many Gentiles will be saved through the preaching of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Now, to Israel, God is going to send two mighty witnesses. They'll be dressed like Old Testament prophets, and you can speculate all day about who they might be. These two witnesses, now, who are they going to be witnessing to? The Jews, to Israel. So, you know what they're going to do? They're going to perform many signs and wonders. Don't the Jews always want signs? It's interesting to me that the 144,000 Jews who go into the Gentile nations don't perform signs and wonders. They just preach the gospel. But the two mighty witnesses who witness to their own people, the Jews, they perform many signs and wonders. And uh, they will also see a great harvest. Because many Jews will be saved through their witness. And they, the ones who are saved, they in turn will become additional witnesses to their own people. Again, many of them will die. But ultimately, that will be good because they're saved for all of eternity. So God's first purpose for the tribulation period is to increase the membership of his kingdom. Secondly, to crush the kingdom of Satan. You know, since the fall of man way back in the Garden of Eden to the time of the tribulation, God will have allowed Satan and his dupes, both satanic and human, to try every possible means to overthrow him. And although God has been preventing Satan from accomplishing his malicious and prideful goal, he has not really begun to execute his sentence of judgment on him 
and his demonic followers for their rebellion. Now, Satan was crushed where? He was defeated. He's a defeated foe. He's on an awful long chain. But he is a defeated foe. His head was fatally bruised, crushed at the, at the cross. He's been sentenced, but the sentence hasn't been carried out yet. You know, he hasn't been put into prison, so to speak, yet. He's still deceiving the world, very much so. Uh, he's still persecuting God's people all over this world. And you and I, whether you think so or not, are being persecuted in a different way, maybe not physically, but we're persecuted for being lights in a dark world, for standing up for righteousness' sake. Um, and he is still trying to desperately overthrow God and prevent his kingdom and his king from returning. That's what he does at the Battle of Armageddon when he sees Christ returning in the air, in the sky, with us following behind the armies of heaven. He tries to prevent him from coming. You know, he has all his dupes turn on Christ. How ridiculous that you could ever prevent Christ, you know, just the word out of his mouth and that's the end of that. But he's still, he's still trying to do his thing, Satan is. And as time grows shorter, which he knows it is, because he's been studying this Bible for a lot longer than you and I, for centuries and centuries, and he knows this book from cover to cover, and he knows his time is getting very, very short, and so he works all the more hard. And he will especially be during the tribulation. Once the church is removed and the Antichrist is revealed, Satan will begin his ultimate full-forced attempt to overthrow God. However, at the end of the seven years of the tribulation, God will finally begin to close in on him to execute his judgment. And we know what happens to him. After the tribulation, he is thrown for a thousand years where? Into the... No, not yet. He's thrown into the bottomless pit... And then after the millennial kingdom, he's loosed for a season. When his final rebellion is over, he then is thrown into the lake of fire forever. Good riddance. Third reason for the tribulation is for God to pour out judgment. Remember, it's a day of the Lord's wrath, God's wrath. Pour out judgment on unbelieving men and nations. Now, in Revelation 3.10, when the Jesus, was, Jesus was speaking to the church of Philadelphia, which was a really, really good church... Uh, church of brotherly love he said this to them he said i also and you know when he speaks speaks to the churches he's speaking to the church in general he says i also will keep thee from the hour of temptation now that's that's just one of i could give you literally a hundred reasons for why i firmly 100 percent believe that the rapture of the church is going to occur before the tribulation I have all the confidence in the world in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. This is just one of many verses I could give to you that support that truth. But he says there, we could do a little word study on the word from, where he says, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation. That's exactly what it means in the Greek. And if he wanted to say something else, he would have had to have used a different Greek word. If he wanted to say, I will keep you in the tribulation or I will keep you through the tribulation, he would have had to use a different word, but he used specifically the word from, which means I'll keep you from it, completely from it. You won't be here. So make sure you're saved and that you're part of the church because you do not want to go through the tribulation. But he says, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. 
When he says them that dwell upon the earth, he's always speaking about earth dwellers, unbelievers. Why is he going to send the tribulation? To try earth dwellers. This promise doesn't only teach the true church will be raptured before the tribulation, but it also tells us that one of God's reasons for the tribulation is to try the world. It's to test the world. It's a time when the Lord will come out of his place, like Isaiah said, to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. God will judge the nations of the earth earth because of their godlessness. They haven't been punished yet. You know, Israel was punished way back in 70 AD, but have the nation, the Gentiles were just as guilty of killing Jesus Christ as the Jews, weren't they? All of us were, the whole world. We're the ones who put the nails into his hands and feet. Uh, And the world, in the end, they will be deceived by the false teachings of both the one world economic and the one world ecumenic harlot systems that you read about in Revelation 17 and 18. And the world will follow the false prophet in the worship of the beast, the Antichrist, the Satan-empowered Antichrist. And for such godlessness, along with the fact that they did crucify his son and they have not repented to give Christ the glory he is due, they must be judged. Judgment? You know, if God didn't judge the world, he wouldn't be a just God, would he? Well, through the ages, now listen to this, because this is interesting. Through the ages, and this isn't in your notes, but um, I wanted to throw it in. (laughs) Through the ages since man's creation, God has given mankind many different situations, which you could call economies or dispensations. And yes, I am a dispensationalist, but not an ultra-dispensationalist. But he has, and I can't help but see it because it's true. He has given man how many different dispensations do you think? Guess. Right. Seven. Seven. Okay. In the beginning days of innocence, the first age was the age of innocence, before man had any knowledge of evil, because he had not eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the age of innocence. Adam and Eve were completely naive and innocent. It didn't last very long. That was a short age. (laughs) And man failed in that economy, that age of innocence, by his willful disobedience. And I got news for you. Eve was deceived. By whom? Satan. But Adam was not deceived. The scripture tells us that. He willfully chose to disobey God. And there's reasons But nonetheless, he willfully disobeyed God. So age of innocence didn't end too well. It ended with man's failure. Then the next age was the age of man's God-given conscience. His conscience was his law. And he failed (laughs) in that age with universal corruption. All you have to do is read Genesis 6, 5, where it says that the thoughts of man were evil continually and God had to send a global flood in order to save a godly seed he had to do it because Noah was the only righteous man left he and his family and so before Noah got corrupted and his sons got corrupted God had to clean everything out 
So the age of conscience end with, ended with man's failure. And then, remember, after Noah got out of the ark, God gave him some governmental rules, like an eye for an eye, you know, capital punishment. That was the beginning of the age of human government. And it ended with the initiation of humanism, man trying to work his way, build his way to God on his, by his own efforts at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. So man failed in the age of human government. And then there was the age of the law. Remember when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and the law on Mount Sinai. Well, do you know how the age of law ended? You do. When they nailed God's son to an old rugged cross. And then we went into the age of grace, which is what the age you and I live in today. The church age. Do you know how the church age ends? Just read the letter to the church of Laodicea. It ends, or read the little book of Jude. The church age ends in apostasy. And then what will be the next age that this world will go into after the church is removed? The tribulation age. And that age will end with worldwide worship of the Antichrist. And with men gathered at Armageddon to challenge the Son of God himself. Man isn't doing too good, is he? So we have the age of innocence, the age of conscience, the age of human government, the age of law, the age of grace, which happens to be five. What's the number in the Bible for grace? Five. Then we'll go into the age of tribulation six, when the 666 man will reign. And what will be the seventh age, lady? The millennial kingdom. What's seven? Perfection, completion. The millennial kingdom will be the time when, when uh, God will again demonstrate to man his own depraved nature apart from God. Because he will literally give mankind a perfect environment. The millennial kingdom, you know, a lamb will be able to lie down with a lion. It will be a perfect environment. And he will also give man a perfect ruler. Who will be ruling? Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord. I mean, you can't ask for a better <laughs> benevolent theocratic dictator than Jesus Christ. And he will even go a step further because you see... You say, well, you know, man always, men, you hear them say, well, this world, we can make this world better if we just go green and we save all the sea otters and we hug a tree every day and, um, you know, we educate people enough. I don't see education getting uh, people better, ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. But they say, if we could just educate everybody and clean up our environment, then we'll have utopia here on earth. And God will show them, uh-uh, that's not the problem. I'm going to give you utopia here on earth with my son reigning, and you'll still have your depraved sinful nature. Not the ones who initially go into the kingdom, but, you know, they'll have children, and they'll all be stillborn with this Adamic sin nature. So everybody living in the millennial kingdom and human bodies will not be saved. And we know that because of what happens at the end. But God is going to show man his depraved nature and how much he needs his son's atoning shed blood 
you know, for his sins. Because some would say, well, you know, the devil made us do it. It's all the devil's fault. You know, God gave us a perfect earth at the beginning. Didn't he say, after he created everything, didn't he say it was very good? Except he allowed for one thing to creep into the garden. The serpent, right? So man ever since has been saying, well, the devil made me do it. But you see, in the millennial kingdom, man won't have that excuse. They can't say the devil made me do it because where will the devil be? For a thousand years, he'll be in the bottomless pit. And then why, you always ask, why does God let him out at the end? Haven't you wondered why would he do that? Just keep him in there. But he lets him come out. You know why? Because there are going to be millions of people, believe it or not, after living for a thousand years on a perfect earth with no death, really. And yet millions of people will again be willing to follow the devil in a rebellion, which is very short-lived, against Christ and God. And God is doing that to show man, again, that he, he will never, ever be able to accuse God of not having given him a chance to prove himself worthy of heaven apart from Christ's atoning sacrificial death for his sins. That's why every man's mouth will be stopped. And there are no excuses. God will have given mankind every possible test and chance. You agree? Isn't that beautiful? Well, one of, one of the Lord's greatest purposes, this is a fourth reason for the tribulation, will be to save his beloved Israel. He hasn't forgotten about Israel. Don't believe this baloney about replacement theology that God is finished with Israel. That is false teaching. He is not finished with Israel. She's been set aside temporarily, but there are so many scriptures that say he is going to keep his covenant promises to her. For centuries, we know she's been in a state of rebellion, refusing to repent of the crime she committed against her own Messiah. And as a result, she has suffered. Oh, she has suffered wave after wave of persecution as one Gentile nation after another has oppressed her and indulged in anti-Semitism which is big time on the rise today. He, even here in the United States. It's scary. But it's also all part of the end time scenario. Yet there have always been, throughout all the centuries, there have always been nations that were willing to give refuge and uh, aid to Jewish people in their time of oppression, such as the United States. Would, you know, we would welcome the Jewish people. However, during the nightmarish reign of the Antichrist, who will persecute the Jews worse than they have ever been persecuted, which right in itself is saying a mouthful, if you know anything about the persecution they faced even just in the Holocaust. It's horrendous. I don't even like to speak about it. But they'll be persecuted even worse under the reign of the Antichrist. And during that time, there will be no nation that they can turn to for refuge because of the worldwide influence and rule of the one who is persecuting them. So sad to say even the United States won't be saying to Israel, we're pretty much turning our backs on her now. But uh, we, won't, we won't be there to say, come, come here because the Antichrist will be reigning. In fact, at the end of Daniel's 70th uh, week, 
the armies of the nation of the world are going to be gathered in Israel to attempt to do what? Annihilate her altogether. Isn't that what the Iranians, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, wants to do today, is to annihilate Israel. And that's why they're going to be gathered initially at the Battle of Armageddon, is to annihilate Israel. And God is going to use all this terrific pressure of putting Israel through the fire of the tribulation in order to purify her. Uh, he's going to allow, he's going to permit Satan to orchestrate all this, and all of it is, is, is as a means to back Israel into such a hopeless corner that she finally realizes that there is no way of escape other than to cry out to God. And in response to her cry, he will again send to her, as he did at the first coming, he will again send to her his beloved son, who will smite the armies that are gathered there at Megiddo against her. He will not allow the apple of his eye to be destroyed. And at the end of Daniel's 70th week, Israel... At long last, you know, that's when she will realize, oh, the one coming and setting his feet upon the Mount of Olives, just like it says in Zechariah 14. (laughs) That one is the one who came the first time. Look at the nail prints in his hands. That's Jesus. And they will finally mourn for him as an only son. They will recognize and repent of their sin of having crucified their true Messiah. And she will respond to him as Lord and Israel What's left of her, corporate Israel, will be saved. Romans eleven twenty six. Well, with that quick explanation, it wasn't too quick, was it? This is our introduction to the lesson. With that quick explanation of the tribulation, now we're going to begin our look at Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5. We're only going to cover two verses, so don't get too panicky. Uh, we're going to look at what Jesus predicted about the beginning of the birth pangs. Okay, and he called this the beginning of sorrows. You know, there's two words for, let's take the whole seven years of tribulation. What are the first three and a half years called? Look at verse 8. The beginning of sorrows, the beginning of the birth pangs. What are the last three and a half years of the tribulation known as? The great tribulation. And what's, right here where my microphone, what's in the middle? of the tribulation at the three and a half year mark the abomination of desolation so there you have the seven years in a nutshell beginning of sorrows abomination of of desolation and the great tribulation okay now in the beginning of sorrows which he describes um, there in verses four to eight there are four specific types of sorrows that the lord mentions deception that's the only one we're going to talk about this morning Deception, destruction, death, and disturbances. So let's look at Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5. Deception. He says, uh, after the disciples asked the two questions in verse 3, it says, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive. How many? Many, many shall come and many shall be deceived. So the first labor pain to signal the soon return of Jesus, that's what they ask, you know, what will be the sign of your coming? First labor pain is that there will be widespread deception in the world. 
The Lord's answer was simple but serious. Take heed that no man deceive you. He said many would come in his name saying, here I am, I'm the Christ. And even more tragically, many would be deceived by him. Now I have a question for you. Is Jesus speaking here to the church? Is he speaking to you and I? Is he speaking to the bride of Christ? First of all, we won't be here, right? We'll be gone. But would does he have to tell you and I, if you're a true believer, to be not to take heed that you won't be deceived by a false Christ? Right. The sheep know their shepherd. They know the voice. Of the, no man can come to me and deceive me by telling me he's the Christ. Because first thing I would ask him is, let me see the nail prints in your hands. <laughs> let me see your pierced side and let me put my hand right through you because you're in a glorified body. And if he doesn't fulfill that, I'm not going to be deceived by some of these kooks we're going to look at today. And either would you be. Because we've already put our faith and trust in the true Messiah. We know how he measures up to all the messianic credentials of the scripture. So we're not going to be deceived. Remember, Christ is speaking here to Israel. He is warning Israel and others, Gentiles, who would have ears to hear during the tribulation. He's warning them not to be deceived by the proliferation of false Christs who will multiply. There have been many in the past, but they're going to even be more in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Deception in those days will be greatly intensified and increased because of the fact that the restraining of evil work of the Holy Spirit will have been removed, 2 Thessalonians 2.7. You know, the Holy Spirit has, this is no surprise, a sevenfold ministry. Part of the Holy Spirit's ministry is to convict sinners of sin and, and get them saved. He'll still be doing that work in the tribulation. Because many will get saved. That's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. But one of his ministries he will not be doing during the tribulation is restraining evil. Now, can you imagine? Today, he's restraining evil. And what kind of a world do we live in? <gasps> evil. Can you imagine what it will be like when he, the Holy Spirit, working through you and I, is no longer restraining evil? Oh, there'll be such a proliferation of false teaching, false prophets, false messiahs that we can't even begin. Now, since Israel in particular and unsaved men in general have frequently been deceived by such false messiahs as some of the bizarre men I'm going to talk about in a minute who have arisen during the time of the church age, you can just imagine what it's going to be like, what kind of men and maybe even what kind of women will lead people to believe in them as messiahs in the days when the Holy Spirit is no longer restraining evil. I wouldn't be surprised if in those days women will say, I am the Christ. Would you? Well, since Christ's first coming, there have been at least 23 major false messiahs who have attempted to deceive Israel and the world into believing them. That's just major false messiahs. There were untold hundreds of other minor false messiahs. And uh, although the Lord's words here in the Olivet Discourse refer to false Christ who will arise. 
the last days of the tribulation. Yet, if I take a little bit of time right now to share with you some of the accounts of some of those who have deceived large numbers of people in the past and even on into the present, up to the 1990s, I'm going to tell you about one, then I think we get a a better idea of how far worse um, deception will be in the tribulation. Well, I'm going to skip some of these guys because of time, but just 10 years after the Lord's crucifixion, 10 years after he was crucified, a pretender to messiahship by the name of Theudas appeared on the scene, and he immediately was able to raise a large following. However, there was a Roman who didn't care for him, and he had his head removed so that he didn't last very long. But that was just 10 short years after the Lord's crucifixion. The next false messiah who appeared on the scene, who was a major one, was a man named Bar Kokhba. And he was a natural leader of men with a very magnetic personality. And he was able to inspire numerous Jewish followers to a fanatical devotion of him. None. What amazes me about all of these guys is none of them uh, have any messianic credentials whatsoever. Most of them never even set foot in Israel. Just amazing. But this one, he didn't have one single claim to messiahship that was based on scripture, and yet he was endorsed by one of the greatest, most well-known rabbis of all Judaism, Rabbi Akaba. This is like a picture of the end times because you had a false prophet, Rabbi Akaba endorsing a false messiah, Bar Kokhba. And that's all it took for the Jews, was for their famous rabbi to say, this man is your messiah. And, and they swept the Jews off their feet. Only Christian Jews refused to join the bandwagon in this movement, which resulted in a two-year rebellion against Rome. Now they finally had the kind of Messiah they wanted all along, one who would lead them in a rebellion against Rome. Isn't that what they wanted Jesus to do? So Bar Kokhba leads them in this rebellion against Rome, which wasn't too smart, and uh, it ended with all of Bar Kokhba's troops being annihilated. The false Messiah himself was slain, and his false prophet, Rabbi Akaba, was tortured to death. That was 60 years after the 70 A.D. destruction of Israel. Well, one of the most prominent pseudo-messiahs was a man who called himself Moses of Crete. He was able to, to persuade the entire Jewish... Now, remember, the Jews are scattered to all the world. So he was able to inspire all the Jews living on the island, the Greek island of Crete, that he was indeed their, their messiah. And uh, so he told them, he swore to them that just like Moses in the old days, that, and he took his name from Moses, that wasn't his real name, he was going to, um, like Moses had, had opened up the Red Sea so that they could, the Jews could walk into the Promised Land, he, Moses of Crete, was going to open up the Mediterranean Sea so that they could walk from Crete to the Promised Land. Now... That's 600 miles of Mediterranean Sea. (laughs) And so on the given day, he and all his many Jewish 
Cretans, <laughs> I guess you'd call them, went to a certain ledge that jutted over the sea. And at his signal, I don't know, you know, he didn't have a rod that he just said, okay, open up. At his signal, this was his idea. One, two, three, everybody leap into the sea. And that's what I call a real leap of faith. And that's what they did. Moses of Crete and his many Jewish followers leapt into the Mediterranean Sea. And guess what? It didn't open up and they all drowned. Sad, sad. Um, the next major false prophet to arrive on the scene, now this is 700 AD, was um, a tailor. You know, he made clothes. His name was Abu Isa. Self-proclaimed name. You know why? Because Abu Isa means father of Jesus. Hmm. I guess he was saying he was God, right? Abu Isa told his followers that Moses, Muhammad, and Jesus were all prophets, but he was the true Messiah. Now, in 700 AD, the Muslims had dominion over Israel at this time in history, but Abu... Abu promised the Jews of the world, you know, they're scattered everywhere, that he is going to lead them back into the promised land. Remember, they're scattered, so they, their focus is all to get back to Israel, right? So he's going to lead them to the promised land, and he's going to drive out the Muslims. And so he has an army of 10,000 Jewish men, and he sets forth on his mission. And here's his battle plan. It's a good one. He's going to be smarter than Moses. He's not going to have everybody jump into the sea. He is going to draw this giant circle around his 10,000 soldiers. And that circle is going to prevent the Muslims from harming them. And they can just keep moving and moving the circle, and they'll push the Muslims out. What do you think happened to that ridiculous battle plan? Yes, it, it failed to, to result in the promise. <laughs> it failed to produce the promise result, and the Muslims made a bloody mess of Abu Isa and his Jewish army. Actually, he committed suicide, and the, the Muslims slaughtered his army. Well, there were other false messiahs who came and went, but the next fascinating one, interesting one, arose from Yemen. We've been hearing a lot since the Christmas Day bomber about Yemen, haven't we? I don't even know this guy's name, but um, this man, went, he, he proclaimed himself to be the messiah, and when he was captured by the king of Yemen, he told the king, <laughs> I can't imagine this, but he told the king, if you behead me, I will rise from the dead. And that was just too much of a temptation for the king of Yemen. <laughs> what do you think he did? <laughs> Off came his head. <laughs> and he, get, he did not rise from the dead. His, his head did not reconnect with his body, and that was the end of whatever his name was from Yemen. Then another strange individual who pr proclaimed himself Messiah was named Abraham Abulfia. This is in the 13th century. Okay, Now, this is history. This is truth true history he was the son of a prominent spanish jew now abraham heard voices throughout his life hmm. little voices speaking to him now the first time he heard his voices if you're hearing voices be careful but the first time he heard the voices they told him he was a prophet but when he tried his hand at prophecy his results were so bad that he was expelled from Spain. They kicked him out. 
Then on another occasion, the voices again came to him and they told him to go to Rome and convert the Pope to Judaism. Okay, that's a pretty good challenge. And convinced that he was truly inspired by God, that's exactly what Abraham Abulfia did. However, the shock of his proselytizing, you know, he went to the Pope and he tried to proselytize him to Judaism. The shock, the Pope was pretty old, resulted in the Pope having a heart attack and dying. He didn't convert him to Judaism, he he killed him. (laughs) And so that made the Catholics pretty mad. So they threw Abulfia into prison and said that he would burn at the stake. However, guy must have been a really smooth talker because he talked himself out of prison and then he went to Sicily in Italy where he again heard his little voices and guess what they told him this time that not that he was just a prophet and not that he should convert the Pope this time the voices told him he was the Messiah of course that's what the voices were building up to and so Believe it or not, he was able to muster a number of followers, um, but eventually he crumbled under the opposition of stronger-minded Jews. And he was, this is at one time when the rabbis had it right, the rabbis said, this guy is baloney, and they excommunicated him, and we don't know what happened to him. He, he just disappeared into obscurity. Another guy named Moses Botarell was a self-proclaimed messiah and he challenged the spanish king of his day to (laughs) these guys i don't know where he got this idea but probably from that other one who said just behead me and (laughs) this guy says uh to the spanish king throw me into a fiery furnace (laughs) just like just like King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. And Bodorel said, I will not burn, and then you will know that I am the true Messiah. Guess what? His boast turned into a quick roast. <laughs> well, then in the 16th century, Asher Lemlin persuaded the Jews of Venice, Italy... Notice how none of them are in Bethlehem, Ephrata, or even in Judea, or even in Israel. Um, But he persuaded the Jews of Venice, Italy, that he was Elijah, who had come to take them where? To the promised land in a chariot of fire. Now, that was novel. And so the gullible community believed him, and they all prepared for the great day uh, when God would come in a chariot of fire and take Elijah and them into the promised land. So they were fasting and praying, and the day came, and the day went. (laughs) And nothing happened, and Asher Lemlin's short career as Elijah was ended. Well, another, one of the most colorful false messiahs was an emaciated dwarf named uh, David Rubeni. In 1524, Rubeni rode into the Vatican on a white horse, and won himself an audience with Pope Clement VII. And this was a time now when Protestantism was beginning to hammer away at the very foundation of the Roman Catholic Church. So the Pope was interested in this little man who claimed, he was a Jewish man, little Jewish man, who claimed that he had this considerable army of fierce Jewish warriors, warriors out in the Arabian desert. 
he didn't have an army of fierce Jewish warriors in the Arabian desert, but what does truth matter anyway, you know? But that, he convinced the Pope that this was true, so the Pope gave Rubeni his papal blessing, and he sent him to King John III of Portugal so that the king would give him armies and troops and aid and ships. Well, King John of Portugal was equally impressed with Rubeni and promised him military aid. And so the newly proclaimed Messiah then swept through Portugal. He's got the king of Portugal's blessing, so he sweeps through Portugal and he wins many, many followers. Even many professing, not possessing, many professing Christians believed in Rubeni as their Messiah and they converted to Judaism. Weird. And this just proved to be too much for King John of Portugal because he was Catholic, you know, and all those people are converting to Judaism. And so he decided it was time to remove Rubeni. And when Rubeni got word of this plan that he was going to be removed, he fled and he left all of his followers to face a very angry Roman Catholic church. Well, among the converts that Rubeni had made when he was in Portugal was a man named Diego Perez. He was the royal secretary of the High Court of Justice. He was a Gentile. Hmm, since when was the Messiah going to be a Gentile? You read that in your Bibles? Anyway, this guy was a Gentile, but he did realize that he probably should be a Jew, so he had himself circumcised, <laughs> and he proclaimed himself to be a Jew. And he even changed his name from Diego Perez to Solomon Mokel. And uh, first of all, when he came on the scene, he proclaimed to be the Messiah's messenger. But when he saw that he was so easily able to create a great wave of excitement among even the Jewish rabbis, he went a step further. I'm not just the Messiah's messenger. I am the Messiah. You know, success went to his head. And then he went to, he had been in Portugal, then he went to Italy where he did officially present himself to be Messiah. Is that what Daniel said? That, I mean, uh, Zechariah? That the Messiah would present himself to, um, to Italy? <laughs> Wasn't the Messiah supposed to ride into Jerusalem on the cold of an ass? Anyway, what does the Bible matter to these guys? So Mokol spent, um, when he got to Italy, he spent a whole month, oh my, a whole month living in beggar's rags and uh, ministering to the poor of Italy and even visiting the sick. And on a few occasions, he went to see some lepers. Now, he didn't cleanse them and he didn't even touch them, but you know, and his fame spread. And people said, uh, that, that, and, and uh, fame spread until it reached the ears of the Pope, whoever he was at this time, and the Pope encouraged him. What, what, aren't these guys supposed to be infallible? Well, the Pope encouraged him and granted him immunity from the Inquisition. However, when Emperor Charles V of the Roman Empire, who was a merciless tyrant and an avid Roman Catholic, when he got word of Diego Perez, a.k.a. Solomon Molkol, and his outrageous blasphemy, he had him burned at the stake. So that was the end of Solomon. Then a century later, and this guy's really interesting, 1626, Shabbatai Zevi was born in Smyrna, Turkey, of Spanish immigrants. Again, I don't see any connection with the lineage of Abraham and David there, do you? 
Smyrna, Turkey. He was a Turk. He was a Spanish Turk is what he was. And, and he was Jewish. But he was, a, they say, I never saw him, but he was a handsome man with piercing eyes and a very charismatic personality. He was married twice, but he wasn't able to consummate either one of his marriages, so his wives divorced him. And then he became an aesthetic, performing some of the most vigorous penances than, you know, that anybody could imagine. He would lacerate his own flesh, and he would jump into the icy sea in the middle of winter. And so his fanatical asceticism brought him a reputation of being a holy man. You know, that's all it takes to be a holy man. Cut yourself up and jump into, you know, be a member of the polar bear club, and you're holy. And so stories soon began to, these are rumors, but stories began to circulate that he could even perform miracles. And so the stage was set. In 1648, Shabbatai Zevi proclaimed himself to be the Messiah by speaking the name Yahweh. And uh, that action, of course, you know, was considered utter blasphemy by the Jews. So the Jews of Smyrna, Turkey, his hometown, kicked him out. They drove him out of his hometown. But then he said, you know, after all, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country. And so he proceeded to go to throughout the Middle East, preaching and praying and announcing himself as Messiah to the multitudes who flocked to him all the way from England to India. And do you know that he had over one million Jews following him as the Messiah? That was, at that time, one-third of the Jewish population of the world was following this guy, Shabbatai Zevi. Ever hear of him? Amazing. Well, next he traveled to Egypt, and he swept Cairo off of its feet. And when he was there, he was reading the book of Hosea. You know the book of Hosea? Who did God tell Hosea to marry? A prostitute named Gomer. So he's in Egypt, and he's looking for a prostitute named Gomer. Didn't find one, so he looks at Poland, you know, try to find one named Gomer. I don't know why. Is that a Polish name? <laughs> we couldn't find a Gomer. <laughs> so <laughs> how many of you would ever name your daughter Gomer? <laughs> they couldn't find one, so he settled for a harlot woman named Sarah. Um, again, he was unable to consummate his marriage. Can you believe in Bible study? You just talk about everything. But he couldn't consummate his marriage, but Sarah didn't care because she was another kook who believed that she was destined to be the Messiah's wife anyway, so she remained with him. Well, his fame spread so quickly throughout all of Europe, and some of the greatest families in Europe became his disciples. So much so that by the time he finally got around to returning to Smyrna, Turkey, all the Smur Smurfs, <laughs> I don't know what you call them, all the Smyrninians, um, came out and hailed him and said, long live the Messiah. Isn't that something? You know, when Jesus returned to his own hometown of Nazareth, they didn't hail him. You know, they tried to kill him. They were totally rejected, drive him out of the city, but... Hear this false one. They say, oh, long live the Messiah. <laughs> I can't remember that. Now he died in prison. 
1656, this latest of self-deluded messiahs, Shabbatai Zevi, went to Constantinople. Okay, that's the capital of Turkey, and that was a wrong move to do. As soon as he arrived, the sultan of Constantinople had him arrested. However, fearful that if he killed Shabbatai Levy, he would then make him into a martyr hero, and he would you know, have an even bigger following, the uh, wise sultan just had him thrown into prison. But then people flocked to him in prison, bringing him all kinds of rich gifts, and he literally lived like a king in prison. Even his guards were seduced by his charm. And so the sultan came to realize that nothing short of exposure would render this man harmless. And so the very clever sultan gave Shabbatai Levi, Levi a, um, an ultimatum. He said, either you convert to Islam or I will execute you. And what do you think he did? He converted. <laughs> He wasn't that brave. He wasn't, he wasn't like the guys who said, behead me or you know, put, throw me in the fire. He converted and he changed his name to Muhammad <laughs> Effendi. And he was immediately released from prison and appointed royal keeper of the royal door, whatever that means. And yet, even in this treason, you know, here he proclaims to be the Messiah of the Jews, and he converts to Islam. And even in this, his, continue, his followers continued to believe in him. And they made the excuse that he only converted to Islam in order to win the Muslims to Christianity. Amazing. And so the Shabbatai movement began to grow even further. And finally, the sultan had enough. And he put him in an Albanian prison, and he remained there until his death. Well, then there was this other scoundrel, this is in the 1800s, or 1700s, excuse me, who was named Jacob Frank. He was a Russian, Russian Jew, a traveling salesman, and he was hailed as Messiah by a Polish prophet who declared that Frank was the second person of the Trinity. So there's God the Father, Jacob Frank, and God the Holy Spirit. Redemption. Frank said, was through sexual promiscuity. And uh, money poured in, of course. Money poured in so that he was able to live in great luxury and host all these frequent lavish orgies. And uh, eventually it was the Catholic Church that threw him into prison. And um, they refrained from burning him at the stake because they found out that his godfather was the king of Poland. So they didn't put him to death, but he was in prison for 13 years. And upon his release, he set himself up in grand style in Austria until he died of a seizure. He was followed, believe it or not, this, it just gets even more and more bizarre, but he was followed by a poorly educated orphan whose name was Baal Shem Tov. Now, can you imagine following a Messiah whose name is Baal? B-A-A-L. And he heard mysterious voices. Hmm. Getting to be sort of a pattern here, right? And uh, he announced that he was a messenger of God, and disciples began to gather around him. He taught that God was only approached through prayer and faith, but not through the Scripture. Books are dull, he said. Don't bother to read books, especially the Scripture. Of course, if you're, you know, Baal, named Baal, and you're proclaiming to be the Messiah of the Christians, you want to keep people from the Bible. 
So uh, he, here's how he said you could get into God's grace and make your way into heaven. Dance and sing, clap your hands and be happy. And God will be pleased with you and let you into heaven. And of course, be promiscuous, that'll help too. And when he died, believe it or not, he had over 100,000 followers. Just goes to show you how dumb people are. I mean, it's just, isn't it amazing? Well, in, I'm almost done now. I know I've kept you, but in fairly recent times, we've even had false messiahs. You've all heard of Jim Jones. Remember him? And remember a man named Vernon Howell? Maybe you don't. But Vernon Howell uh, believed himself to be not only the antitype of King David, so he took the name David, but also believed himself to be the, the antitype of Cyrus of Persia, and that's where he got the name Koresh. So his name was David Koresh. His real name was Vernon Howell, but he called himself David Koresh. Now how many of you have heard of him? Koresh told his deluded followers that he was Jesus Christ reincarnated. That sounds like Hinduism, doesn't it? Reincarnated. He taught that since Jesus was sinless, he could not rightly judge mankind because Jesus had never experienced sin. Therefore, God sent Jesus Christ back to earth again, reincarnated in the person of Vernon Howell, a.k.a. David Koresh, so that this time he could experience sin and therefore be more capable of judging a sinful world. Talk about topsy-turvy doctrine. So David Koresh saw himself as the sinful Messiah. He also said that as the reincarnated sinful Jesus, he owned everything, the whole universe, the whole earth, and everyone, which included women, all the women of the world, whether they're married or not, which meant that he could have any woman he wanted, which if you know anything about him, he had this little compound and he had all the women he wanted well um you know how that ended in on april 19th 1993 that wasn't that long ago he and his followers committed suicide didn't they drink poison kool-aid isn't that and um after a 51 day siege on the branch davidian compound in wacko texas <laughs> that's what i call it wacko <laughs> Um, then there were Lubavitcher Jews just a, like 10 years ago, a big group of Lubavitcher Jews, whatever they are, who proclaimed this rabbi who was in his 90s, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson. That's a mouthful. They really believed that he was the Messiah. Guy was born in Brooklyn, New York, never set foot in Israel. And the, these Lubavitcher Jews were so disappointed when he died. How many of you remember that? It wasn't that long ago, like 10 years ago. So disappointed when he died. Well, such have been just some, just some of the false messiahs this world has seen. There have been dwarf messiahs, warrior messiahs, lunatic messiahs, cowardly crackpot messiahs, turncoat messiahs, and all of them were really deadly, dangerous messiahs. But as colorful as they have all been, not one of them fulfilled even the most basic scriptural requirements to be the true Messiah. Not one of them was born in Bethlehem, Ephrata of Judea. Not one of them was born from a virgin. Not one of them had the ancestral line that they could prove, you know, back 
through David and back to Abraham. Not one of them could prove that they came from the tribe of Judah. Not one, most of them didn't even ever live in Israel. And not one of them lived a sinless life, that's for sure. And not one of them defeated death. There's only one who ever did all of the above. And what is his name? Jesus. But remember, he wasn't telling you and I not to be deceived because we're not going to be if you really know who the true Messiah is. But he is warning Israel and the world not to be deceived. But many will be, especially by the Antichrist, who will probably be all of these guys and take Hitler and Stalin and all the rest of them, Ahmadinejad, put them all together in one man, and that's how horrible the Antichrist will be. Mm. So make sure you're a member of the church, and then we'll be out of here. Mm. Let's pray. Father, we know that your word says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that one and only name is not Moses of Crete, it's not um, Jacob Frank or Bar Kokhba or Menachem Schneerson or David Koresh or whatever name the Antichrist will have. That one and only name is Jesus. And he alone met every messianic prophetic credential. And we thank you, Father, that we know him, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man will come into your presence except by him. We love him. I pray that the rest of our years we will serve him. May we redeem our time wisely in these next two weeks and bring all of us back safely and soundly in two weeks from now. For we do pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.